I'm so thankful in moments like this to lean in, not to our strength, but into the strength of our omnipotent God who laid hold of us in His grace and in His mercy. And He does not leave us to ourselves. Listen to this from Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Did you feel weak at any point throughout the last seven days? For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In that moment, we don't even know what to pray, but the Holy Spirit knows even in our groaning. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Every one of those in that golden chain of redemption, when our weaknesses, God in His grace and mercy put these as finished works, all of them, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, because it's finished, it's there, it's secure in Christ. He will hold us fast. Praise God this morning. Praise God this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your omnipotent love, your sovereign grace, your ever-present benevolence, God. You love us in spite of us. God, you have shown yourself to be a God who not just overlooks sin, but who sees us in our sin and does not cast us away, but instead works to cleanse us of our sin. And Father, that doesn't just begin or it does begin, of course, in our salvation, but it doesn't end in the moment of our conversion. But it carries on through the course of our life. And I pray, Father, that you would speak a word to this congregation this morning. Father, I am so excited to dish out, God, what you have cooked in my heart today. And I pray that the people come ready to eat Father, I pray it would be a blessing to them. I pray that you would use it to nourish their soul for those who are already saved and would use it to draw those who are not yet saved to Christ that they may be saved today. Father, meet with us here, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, well, amen. Grab your seat and uh, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Beloved, we need to be secured on the foundation of God's Word. 
Why? Well, because life is not always easy. We need, just as we sang a moment ago, that we would be fastened. Fastened. Life can be so difficult. If, if you're to picture your life as a house, as the Bible does there in the Gospels, then the storms of this life will come and it'll try to blow your house down. Jesus said, if you want your house to stand in the face of the storms, and I know you do, no one wants to fall flat in the middle of the storm. No one wants to be wrecked in a storm of life. If you want your house to stand when rain falls and floods come and the winds blow and they beat against your house, then you must build your life on a firm foundation. And Jesus says there in the Gospels that the firm foundation that it must be founded upon is the rock of His words and by extension the words of Scripture. Now there are several places in Scripture to which we could turn that are both foundation building and foundation anchoring. But one of the best is today's text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Beloved, today's text, it's a firm foundation that we can anchor our lives to when the storms come. In fact, it was, it was written, as I said last week, to people in Asia Minor who are already experiencing thunderstorm-like situations in their life. Right, you've been there for the thunderstorm, you hear it in the distance, and there's the rain, and, and you see the ominous sky moving in. And we, we don't really mind uh, thunderstorms. In fact, sometimes we, we, we embrace them, we love them, right? We, we, we would love to hear a thunderstorm to help us go to sleep at night. But there was a hurricane of trouble on the horizon. And there very well may be that in your life right now. The Holy Spirit here through Apostle Peter was, was seeking to hurricane-proof their lives and our lives as well so that the house of their life and our life would stand strong in the tempestuous winds and rains that come our way. And thankfully, this text not just does that from people in Asia Minor, right? 2,000 years ago, it does this for us. It does it for us right here. Collinsville, Mississippi, right here this morning. Beloved, this is an excellent word that provides us with a firm foundation for our faith in the midst of life's storms. Read with me the Word of God here. 1 Peter 1, 6-9, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's Word this morning. So right here is this foundation-anchoring, storm-surviving text. And here is the truth that comes out of it. It's today's truth. Here it is. Even in the midst of various grievous trials, you have ample reasons to rejoice. Even in the midst of various grievous trials, you have ample reasons to rejoice. And that is captured really well right there in verse 6. 
Look at it again, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, I don't have to tell you this. You know this. (laughs) There are various trials happening in your life. The NIV translates this as all kinds. That's That's how we might say it. We might not use the word various. There's a bunch of trials going on in our lives. We may say it that way. The King James translates it as manifold. Many, many, many. It's really interesting here that the Greek word behind these translations literally means many-colored. As one author says, it's a word that can be found in the secular Greek writings often to describe something like the multicolored sheen of a bird feather. So when Peter uses this word here to describe trials, the idea is very vividly to say that he knows the many-hued, multicoloredness of human Suffering, the sheer diversity of suffering in the fallen world. Our trials here in this cursed world are painted in every hue and shade. End quote. So, y'all, that means that there is, in a room like this, in a room of this size, even if it was a room smaller, right? Even if it was just a dozen of us, there would be a great assortment of issues in this room. Right? I mean, And a great many of them are are, are quite grievous. They are hurtful, painful, dreadful, heavy. You you might even use the word monstrous. Again, I I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. It very well may be on that level. We all have a story. And although many parts are good, many parts are indeed bad. But here's the good news. Check it out what it says here in our text, right? It says that while we're all indifferent specific trials and sufferings and and the intensities are different we all are the same in this regard in our ability to have joy in the midst of them that means that despite uh, these various grievous trials even the midst of them you and i we have ample reasons to rejoice in other words you and i can have joy through the junk and that's the title of this morning's message joy through the junk and look it's, it's not just a little bit of joy it's not like the half-hearted half smile that you force yourself to make uh, my family we kid my dad because my dad it's almost like it hurts him to smile dad if you're watching smile <laughs> he always it kind of uh, half smile you know it's like he's forcing himself to do it And that's not the rejoicing, that's not the joy that we're talking about here, that the Bible is describing for us here. You see, the word rejoice here translates a Greek word that's not the typical word for rejoice. One author, he says it this way, he says this word, agaliao, is an intense, expressive term that means to be supremely and abundantly happy. A happiness that is not tentative nor based on circumstances or superficial feelings. Now, as you look at the translation I'm using, the ESV, the English Standard Version, it kind of short sells this word because it just says rejoice. And, and, and that's fine, that's true, rejoice. But a better translation, and maybe your translation uses more of this language, a better translation would be rejoice greatly. Be extremely joyful. Exult. Be truly glad. So, beloved, this is a true 
joy, a full-hearted, full-throated, full-souled rejoicing. And that doesn't always mean that it's exuberant, right? It's not the ecstatic, yeah, running around like you just won the football game. That, that, it can be that kind of rejoicing, but oftentimes it is that full soul. That deep, abiding joy that the world can't touch. Now, that means then that even in the midst of various grievous trials, we can rejoice amply because we have ample reasons to rejoice. In fact, the Holy Spirit gives us five reasons here in our text I want to point you to this morning. The first reason is that your full salvation is ready to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus. Your full salvation is ready to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus. Now, when Apostle Peter says here in verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you rejoice, we have to ask, what is the this he's referring to? And I believe the this he's referring to is just one verse before that, back to, to verse 5, 1 Peter 1, 5, where it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, here it is, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that means, beloved, if, if you and I are in Jesus Christ, then we have a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, or as, as, as 1 Peter 1, 7 concludes, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So both of those words, the, the verb reveal and the noun revelation, they both have the same root word. It's a technical term used by writers of the New Testament to point us to the future bodily second coming of Jesus Christ. That'll happen when? Well, at the end of the age. It'll happen at the end, right? As in the last time. And, and when he comes, what's he going to do? He's going to bring our salvation with us. Now, you might be thinking, now, preacher, I, I thought I already had my salvation. Don't I already have my salvation? And the answer is, you do. Absolutely you do. But not fully. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, at this point, if you are in Christ Jesus, your soul has been saved. All right, that, that's what's alluded to in 1 Peter 1.9. You see that in your text? 1 Peter 1.9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But you and I are more than just our soul. We are our soul, but we are more than our soul. You see, we are also our body. And while your soul was saved the moment that you trusted Christ, the moment that you were born again, you and I are still awaiting the redemption of our bodies. You see, that's what Apostle Paul explains to us in Romans 8, 19 through 23. The scripture there says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth on 
till now. All of the world, all of creation groaning, come, redeem us, save us, set us free. Then he says that, not only creation, the outward creation, not only creation, he says, verse 23, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we've been saved, our souls have been saved, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So beloved, if if, if, if you have been saved in Christ, you're already experiencing your salvation, but not fully, right? You, you experience the salvation of your soul, but the salvation and the redemption of your body is coming. And, hey, that's good news, man. If you were to list your trials and sufferings, how many items on that list would have to do with your body? I mean, right now, my shoulder would be on that list, all right? My eyeballs would be on that list. Maybe that's that knee pain or, or your headaches or your dizziness. Maybe that's arthritis. you got to watch out for arthritis. Somebody said, oh, goodness. <laughs> right? Maybe it's, it's the recovery from that Achilles tear. And maybe it's your shortness of breath or the cancer that you have or had. Or maybe it's the repercussions from that, that heart attack. Right? These are big Things This body is prone to fail. Our list would, would have so many things on them, and many of them would include our bodies. But here is the joy that's coming. Your full salvation. Where not only you'll experience a redeemed soul, but also a redeemed and glorified body. And that's going to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, rejoice. It, it ain't always going to be this way. It's going to get better. In fact, check this out. It's going to get perfected. It's going to get perfected. So even in the midst of various and, and, and grievous trials, guys, we can rejoice because of this. But I know you're thinking, <laughs> well, how long, oh Lord? Which brings me to the second reason this morning here from our text, and it's this. The trials are for only a little while. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit says. I mean, He says this, right? We've got to think we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That means we have to think like God thinks and, and see how God sees. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Now, I know that some of the correlation can kind of get lost in the wordage here, all right? But let me flip it around here as you look at verse 6. If I flip it around, we, we can read it this way, more straightforwardly. You have been grieved by various trials now for a little while. All right, It's just as it says here, a, a little while. Now, in the face of that, our flesh wants to rise up and say, Oh, Peter, you're crazy. I've been suffering with this for years. And that may be true. Brother or sister, this may be true. Your suffering perhaps has been long. So when we realize that when Peter said a little while, he wasn't promising that your suffering on this earth will be brief. In fact, for some of you, you have suffered long. It very well may be a long while instead of a little while. But, but keep in mind, Peter's not just looking at this life. He sees our life and he's looking past this life into the next life that we're promised. And where this life is temporal, 
that life will be eternal. Where this life ends, that life is unending. It's forevermore. And so with that perspective, anything that happens in this life is what? For a little while. I mean, even at the upper span of the human life of 120 years, that is just a microscopic dot in the timeline of eternity. And so these trials truly are for a little while. He's not exaggerating. He's not being hyperbolic here. He is, spake, he is, he is speaking a truth. It truly is in the scheme, the timeline of your existence. It is for a little while. But even in that little while, you're not alone, right? Even more comfort. God is with you. It's a little while, and God is with you. You see, the same God that told Israel this in Deuteronomy 31.6, He told Israel, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The same God that said that to Israel says the same thing to us. He's the same God. In, in fact, Peter says it later in this letter. 1 Peter 5.10 He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Fear not, I am with thee, oh be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. So, dear ones, even in the midst of various grievous trials, we can rejoice because our trials are truly only for a little while. And even in that little while, listen, our big God is with us. Third this morning, we can rejoice because your faith is being proven and perfected. Your faith is being proven and perfected. Now, there is a really curious phrase in the midst of verse 6 here. Really intriguing. Right there in the middle of it, it's found right there in the middle of verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. What, what a strange little clause there, that if necessary. Do you know what that means? Do you know why the Holy Spirit led Peter to put that in there? I believe it's because of this. He's telling us that we will be grieved by various trials only if it's necessary. In other words, if it wasn't necessary, we wouldn't experience it. But so much of our suffering, if we're just being honest here, not the Sunday school answer, so much of our suffering seems unnecessary, doesn't it? We might say, Lord, look, look, you don't have to take me through that for me to learn that. I already know it. Or maybe you learn it through the process. Okay, okay, God, I get it. Tap, I'm tapping out, God. I got it, I got it. I don't need any more. 
You can move on. Beloved, but in His wisdom, He knows what we don't know. He sees what we don't see. He knows if we need refining and how much refining we need. And in His wisdom and love, He does what is necessary. He does what is necessary. Beloved, that's how we should see our suffering. If God takes us through it, He has a purpose for it. These happenings are not just fate or just bad luck. They're not even ultimately from the devil. Even though the devil may be used to inflict suffering on us. I mean, never forget that the devil does nothing outside of God's sovereign permissiveness. He's a creature himself, right? Even he is subject to the Lord, right? Go look at the book of Job, and you'll see that clearly. And God will even use the devil to accomplish his good purposes. To summarize Martin Luther, he said the devil is God's devil. And he never operates outside the Lord's permissiveness. So, beloved, don't just see your suffering as an attack from Satan. He indeed may be attacking you, and he means it for your destruction, for your bad. But God has decreed it for your good and for your building up. The Lord sees it as necessary. Now, why in the world would he see it as necessary? Well, the text here gives us some reasons. And the reason, first and foremost, is that these various and grievous trials, they are proving and perfecting our faith. Look at verse 7. 1 Peter 1, 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it tested by fire, may be found in result, or to result, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, God believes it is necessary to test our faith and to refine our faith. One author said it this way, if our faith is to endure, it must be purified and stress-tested. Like gold, it must pass through the furnace. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence. They drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or, or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Now, you know, I've never gotten to refine gold. I would love the opportunity to do that. So if you have any gold that you would like to pass on... <laughs> For me to refine, I, I would be happy to personally have the experience of seeing gold refined. But I'll tell you what I have refined, and it's like gold, and that's beeswax. 
that's one of the products as a beekeeper that you get, right? You get three things from bees. You get honey. Of course, everybody loves honey, right? That's, that's the golden nectar from God. <laughs> but you also, you can also harvest, um, you can also harvest, um, oh goodness, uh, uh, pollen. You can harvest pollen from bees, right? You can harvest it and put it in pill forms and you can sell that, eat it yourself. But the third thing you can harvest from bees is their wax. And guess how you refine beeswax? Well, you refine it just like you refine gold, to be honest with you, right? You get a pot of boiling water, and you may not boil gold in water. It probably wouldn't work, right? The water would evaporate before the gold does. But when it comes to, 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 to beeswax, you, you boil water, and then you take this big old ball of wax, right? I mean, you, you've seen these big balls of wax, you take all of the wax that you're taking from the frames and you're wanting to clean and refine. You take all of your wax caps that you've taken as you've gotten the honey and spun the honey out. You take all of that wax and this big ball of wax and you keep building it. And I, look, I've had balls of wax like a basketball size. And then you heat up that water and you get it boiling. And then bit by bit, you tear off the wax from that ball and you begin to put it in that water. And of course, it begins to boil. It becomes liquid in that, in that water. And you do that until it's all liquid. And then you take it off the fire. And you let it cool. And that wax will collect into a cake. If it takes on the shape of whatever you're doing. If you do it in a pot and pan, Christy loved it when I would use her kitchen pot and pans to do this, but I was like, hey, sweetheart, it's a small sacrifice to pay, all right? <laughs> and so it takes on whatever shape it is, and if you're doing a pot, then it's going to take on a circle, and so you get this disc of wax, and once it cools, the amazing thing happens as it cools, all of the nasty that's in that wax sinks to the bottom, and the wax rises to the top. It's like cream, right? It rises to the top. And so what you do, once it's cooled, you take out that wax cake and you take your knife and you begin to slice off the bottom because the bottom is nothing but bee parts and pollen and other bee stuff, right? I mean, I'm just being for real. Bees do all sorts of stuff, right? It's their home, okay? All kinds of stuff. And you begin to slice that off. And then what do you do? Well, you throw it back in that boiling water and you do it again. And you do it again until you get that pure, pure beeswax cake. And here's the crazy thing. You start with a basketball-sized ball of wax, you will end up with a cake about three inches around. All that other stuff was junk. It was mess. It was waste. It was impurities that was in there that you really couldn't even see. That wax, which was dark and even black, becomes yellow, even almost translucent, as all the impurities are separated out that's how much junk was mixed in there that you couldn't see and the same is true for gold except gold kind of works the other way gold sinks to the bottom while the junk rises to the top and you just skim off the junk and the pure gold is left at the bottom but gold has to be refined because it's filled with impurities and just like beeswax and just like gold must be refined 
It has impurities in us. Ones that we're not even aware of, but guess what? God is. God sees you as you really are. Things that you're not even aware of, God is aware of, and He loves us enough to put our lives through the crucibles to get the junk out so that we'll be pure on the other side. And ultimately, that's what we rejoice in, right? We don't rejoice in the process. <laughs> Suffering hurts. I have to imagine that if beeswax or gold could speak, I mean, <laughs> wait, 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> don't do that. Ow, that's hot. Right? I mean, you can just hear them saying that. Don't, but isn't that what we say to God? The suffering's miserable. But the results, the results are worth it. The results are worthy of our rejoicing. And indeed, gold is precious. Gold is precious, yet we take it through the refiner's fire. But notice what Peter says again in verse 7. That our faith is more, listen to this, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. See, what that says is that, is that our faith, if it's, if it's precious to us, God's going to refine it. If it is a precious thing, God will refine it. And it's way more precious than gold. Again, when we put gold through the crucible, it doesn't burn away. But one day it will burn away. When God comes at the end of the age and, and burns, the Bible says, all of the elements of the universe... Gold will be burnt away, but faith, faith endures into the age to come, right? Faith pushes us forward until that faith becomes sight. When we behold God face to face. Therefore, we rejoice even in our trials and sufferings because faith is being proven. Our faith is being perfected. Jesus' brother James, he said it this way, James 1, 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said it a little different way, but still with the same point in Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God is working a blessing, proving and perfecting our faith through trials and sufferings. Therefore, rejoice. Fourth this morning. Fourth, we can rejoice in the midst of various and grievous trials because your joy in the Lord is being heightened. Your joy in the Lord is being heightened. Now, we just learned a moment ago, right, two points back, that suffering will be for only a little while, right? I mean, compared to eternity, right? These are comparisons here. 
But Scripture also tells us that these trials will also be a little thing compared to the blessing that we'll have in the age to come. Look again at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, what that means is that these trials are heightening our joy in the Lord so that when He does indeed come again, or when we go to Him, we'll praise Him and honor Him and glory in Him. Now, I bet every one of us in here had your mama tell you at one point, Honey, don't eat that. You're going to spoil your supper. You're going to spoil your supper. All right, now, if you were to eat that, whatever it was, bowl of ice cream, let's say. Eat that big old bowl of ice cream with some brownies mixed in. Oh, man. Right? It actually does nothing to spoil the supper. The supper's still fine. The supper's still nutritious. Everything about that supper is still good. The supper didn't change. But what changed? Your desire for the supper changed. Right? Just like if I, this afternoon and evening, if I were to go, and I'm still mad about this because it's out of business now. If I were to go to the Crystal Burger, I guess i got to go to Philadelphia. Does Philadelphia still have a Crystal Burger? Okay, praise God. One in the area. All right? I couldn't believe the one in Meridian went out. But if I were to go to the Crystal Burger and, and get me a sack full and not share with anybody, <laughs> let's say I do that at 5.30, and then I come home and Christy has the biggest, juiciest ribeye ready to eat, I'm going to be like, oh, no, I mean, I'm in trouble because there's no way around it. I, I can't eat. I just had a sack full of crystals. I can't eat that ribeye even though I'd much rather have that ribeye and that ribeye is so much better <laughs> you see God does something in our life so that we hunger for the things of God the better thing in this life look if we're to be honest most of us are satisfied I, I want to go to heaven but I really don't want to go right now I mean it, it, it's, it's pretty good down here I'm kind of satisfied we have it good enough and that's all well and good as long as things are good. But when God introduces some suffering into our lives, all of a sudden we are dissatisfied. We become weary of this world. We long for what the Lord has to come. We pray that God would come quickly. And God loves us enough, y'all, to sharpen our hunger for heaven. And he typically does that through various trials. If you've been in the hospital and I've come to visit you, you have probably heard me pray Father, would you use this to sharpen his hunger for heaven or to sharpen her hunger for heaven? God loves us enough to do that. And the reason is, is that when he finally comes, when we're dissatisfied with this world, it won't be like, oh, hey, Jesus, what up? No, no, <laughs> it's going to be like, yes, he's here, First Peter says it this way later. Chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our Redeemer, our Savior, our lover of our soul is coming and when that glory is finally revealed oh my goodness y'all it's going to be so much greater than our suffering our suffering seems big though doesn't it loss of that loved one big it is big loss of your bodily functions loss of your marriage the struggles that you have in this cursed world the the pain and heartache and injury but again that comparison comes back into play compared to overwhelming blessings that we'll experience on the other side, our various grievous trials and sufferings will be like, listen, anthills compared to the Himalayas. Anthills compared to the Himalayas. Our blessings will be so much better and that much bigger. That's what Apostle Paul meant when he said this in Romans 8, 18. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's be revealed to us you see comparing the sufferings that we face to the glories that we'll experience in the age to come is as worthless as comparing anthills to the Himalayas God's glory will outshine outweigh our sufferings by a billion fold and so these present trials and sufferings they won't steal our joy because they're heightening our joy. Apostle Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So rejoice, even in the midst of these trials, these various grievous trials, because your joy in the Lord is being heightened. Finally this morning, rejoice because the salvation of your soul is bearing godly fruit. Praise God, if you are in Christ Jesus. You, you've already experienced the salvation of your soul. And the salvation of your body is coming at the appearance of Christ. But what do we do in the middle? The answer is bear much fruit. And we see it spelled out here in verse 8 and 9 here in 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, when it comes to following Jesus, I mean, Peter has a distinct advantage over us. He walked with him. He talked with him. He saw the, 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 the signs and wonders he saw the resurrected Jesus. I mean, he had that advantage. He physically saw Jesus. But you and I haven't. And you and I don't see him now. Yet we still believe. You know, doubting Thomas, 
He said he wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus with his very own eyes. And when he did, he did indeed believe. But here's what Jesus told him, John 20, verse 29. He said, you've believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, beloved, in that regard, you and I, we are more blessed than both Thomas and Peter. We've not seen Jesus, yet we believe. Now, how do we explain that? I believe the only way you can explain it is the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. 15 through 19. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here it is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the wisdom of uh, the spirit of wisdom and of the revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Beloved, the fact that you believe and that you keep believing and you keep following and you keep on loving is because of the work of God. So you have reason to rejoice, right? Our, our, our salvation is bearing godly fruit. Beloved, we have ample reasons to rejoice. I want to say this morning, if you have not yet turned from sin and trusted in Christ, you are building your house not on the foundation. You're building it on sand. And when the rain comes, as Jesus said, and the wind blows, your house will fall. I beg you this morning, turn from sin, trust in Christ. And then you're going to have hope on top of hope. You'll have reason upon top of reason to rejoice. In closing, I read a story about a fellow who was having a really serious medical issue. He was having a lot of pain in his neck. He had lost Something was pinched, maybe, in his neck, and, and he went to the doctor, and he lost kind of, he, he, he had lost some feeling in his hand and, and strength in his hand, and so the doctor began to, to, to tell him how to do this and to do that, and, and, and it was just going to take time for it all to get straightened out. And he was miserable. I mean, every time if he just turned the wrong way, I mean, pain would just shoot up his body. Well, one day, about halfway through the experience, he found himself sitting out on the screened-in porch, behind his house and it was a cold and really windy day but he said I'm going to sit outside I'm committed to sitting outside just to just to have a change of scenery well as he was sitting there this little bird come and landed on the railing and it began to sing and you know what he thought where is my shotgun I want to shoot that bird I am not in the mood to be here and singing right now but the bird continued to warble, and he had no choice but to listen. The next day, he was out on the porch again, but this time, the weather changed. It was kind of like Mississippi, just wait until the next day. It'll change. And this day, it was bright, and it was sunny, and it was warm. And as he was sitting there, he was tempted to, you know, just to feel sorry for himself again. But guess who came back? The bird. At least it looked like the same one. And he began to sing again. 
instead of thinking about a shotgun, the Lord, in a sense, shot him with this truth. He said that bird sang in the cold rain as well as the sunny warmth. His song was not altered by outward circumstances, but was held constant by an internal condition. And God quietly told that man, you have the same choice. Beloved, I don't know what you're facing, whether it's the sunny day or the rotten day, the beautiful season or the ugly season, but God has given you every reason to rejoice. And I pray that you will choose joy so that your house will stand. Here's my final prayer. May the junk never jerk away your joy.